cream. You could fill in the blank with anything. We use our brains. Often, though, we associate, we associate love almost immediately with an emoji, with a heart, with the center of our affection. So here's the question that I want you to in, enter into with me this morning. Does love have more to do with your heart or with your mind? Does love have more to do with your heart or with your mind? Now, my, my uh, eighth grader, my son, did his first personality test that wasn't sort of like an online, which Harry Potter house are you in this week? He did the Myers-Briggs test in school today, this week. And we talked about the differences between all these different kind of personality profiles. And many of you know, many of you know that I am a, I'm an F on the Myers-Briggs. I'm a big feeler. I'm, that's in all of my categories, which everything about the sermon that is about to be preached here, you're going to go, yeah, you're a big feeler. This is like the headiest, thinkingest sermon in the whole entire world. But the kind of thing that motivates me to get up in the morning, the kind of things that I respond to are very much emotional things. Jacob's a thinker. But we talked about, we talked about how thinkers, they have feelings too. Right, thinkers in the room? You guys have feelings too? Feelers, you have a brain as well. We're not just governed by our gut, all of our feelings all the time. So there's already, even in these personality profiles, we can sense that there is a balance, right? And they might get a percentage to that. But there is overlap. There is overlap. Verse 9 of Romans chapter 12, right at the beginning of our reading, Paul says this, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. What does, what does that mean? What, what does every word of that little sentence or else clause mean? So this morning I want to, as simply as I am able, talk about the complexity of love. This, this head and heart dynamic and all of the complexities of love. Whether you're a cold and calculating thinker or you're an up and down by your emotions all the time feeler like me, love is complex. And so that's where I want to go this morning. Let love be genuine. This is a really complicated sentence. And for many reasons, and many of which I'm not going to go into at, at this morning, but firstly, it's not really a sentence. It's not a sentence, although it might be translated that way. Grammatically, this goes all the way back up to verse 5, and this idea in verse 5 that Paul says, we, though many, are one body in Christ. So whatever love being genuine means, it refers to this one-bodiness that we all, though many, are one body in Christ. So this sincere love, whatever that means, it reminds us and it points to, and this is, this is an idea that C.S. Lewis uses, which he's building off the Apostle Paul, that love is like the sinew that holds the joints in your body together. It's the ligaments that holds the top part of your leg to the bottom of your leg together. It holds us together. So the words in this clause, not just the clause itself, but the words are complicated. There are three words the, which I'm not going to get into because that's just a definite article. We can talk about that later if you don't know what that means. Genuine, genuine, that word is a loaded word. And love, what is agape? What is agape love? That's a hard question. What does it mean for love to be genuine or else sincere? If I am sincere, does that make my expression of love true? 
That's very often the only rule for love in our day. We sacrifice many things on this altar, the altar of sincerity. I sincerely believe that I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Therefore, I'm going to leave my wife and my children. And everyone has said it's supposed to be okay because I felt that sincerely. Okay. C.S. Lewis says it like this. We have all heard of people who are in love again every few years, each time sincerely convinced that this time it's the real thing, that their wanders are over, that they have found their true love and will themselves be true till death this time. And here's, here's one of the things I want to say about both of those examples I used. Don't be a person who doubts the sincerity, okay? That there is sincerity there. People are... People are, we'll talk about this more, they are broken and confused and messed up. And I say people, but I mean me. I mean me first. And so when we're talking about sincerity or the feelings that we sincerely feel, don't, don't doubt those. Don't, don't automatically disparage those things that people say. But at what cost is our sincerity? If we, if we worship at the altar of sincerity, what are the costs? Is my sincerity, in other words, it is, is it the mark of love? Is that what Paul is saying? Let love be sincere, Paul says. And then he adds this, abhor, there's a fancy word, an old word, abhor what is evil. Paul begins this list of exhortations, and they're not technically imperatives, but they have the feeling and the weight of a long list of imperatives this genuine love with a strong word only used once in, in the entire New Testament, abhor, abhor. This is the only place to use this word. It, it means hate or despise. It's an intense feeling of hatred, abhor. Other words in this word group have the idea of turning away or else casting out, getting them out, cast them out of the church. These kinds of phrases, abhor, Paul says, evil. Abhor evil and hold fast or cling to or be joined together with what is good, with the good. Verse 10, love one another with the love that holds a family together. So this is at the beginning. This is at the beginning of a reading. And it feels a little bit like whiplash. He says, love, genuine love. And then he says, hate. And then he says, love again. Love, hate, love. This, the feelers in the room know, knows what this feels like, right, to go up and down really quickly. It gets even more difficult in the rest of the chapter. He goes on to exhort the Romans to live within the family of God with love. And even more than that, bless not just those you love, but bless your enemies. Even as you love what is good and you hate evil, when someone does evil to you, don't return evil for evil, Paul says. Release your desire for vengeance. Give it to God. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I thought this was supposed to be about love. And it seems to be a lot of talk about evil or else enemy love or vengeance. All these kinds of ideas. So what is Paul getting at? What is he getting at this doesn't sound like love to us or else it doesn't sound like what I would call if someone asked me what is sincere or genuine love this is not where I would go 
but Paul goes there for good reason, and so that's what I want to consider together. So D.A. Carson, he lists many, many different definitions for the love of God. He's got an entire book about the difficult love of the doctrine of God, but here's a short summary. The expressions, Carson says, love and to love have a wide range of uses when human beings are the subject. So even when you and I are talking about what we love, there's a lot of multiplicity of what we're talking about. Here's some examples he uses. He loves his work. They fall in love. She loves her husband. They make love. He loves woodwork and milkshakes. So there's, there's the multiplicity of meaning in the word love, right? And I think in all... There's, there, there's a lot of different ways in which every one of those are legitimate loves. We could say, well, that's not real love, but then you're weird, okay? So don't be that person, okay? So we talk about love in a lot of different ways related to people, but related to God precisely. This is what Carson says, because God is a person. He is personal who enters into a variety of relationships with you and with me, all of us different the Bible speaks of God's love in several distinguish, distinguishable ways, okay? So I'm going to make three distinctions in love, and then I'm going to try to apply this, this uh, tour de force in love. There's a lot of Bible in this sermon, so I hope you'll stay with me. Three distinguishable characteristics of the love of God, and then three applications as we close. So number one, God is love. Stay with me. I know you've heard that many times before. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. This is perhaps the most popular statement in the Bible. Everyone you know who doesn't ever read the Bible knows this verse, right? This is the new mantra, but what does it mean? At the very least, it means that God, and this is important, in himself, in his, in his person, he is a personal God, the Father loves the son the son loves the father the holy spirit gives this love between father and son and spirit to us romans 5 chapter 5 god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us god is love so hear this this reflects god's divine personhood john 3 john 3 35 the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand john 14 31 i do jesus says i do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that i love the father john 15 and verse 9 as the father has loved me jesus says so have i loved you abide in my love and so this relationship between father son and spirit within the person of god it has direct bearing on us. So God is love. Number two, God loves the world. I'm not assuming that anybody knows this. Hear it, hear it, hear it this morning. God loves the world. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So there is love in God. God is love. And when love came down to us, Jesus Christ, 
the person, the second person of the Holy Trinity, he displayed God's love for you and for me and for the world by giving himself for us. So God is love. God loves the world. Charles Wesley, in a hymn that we'll sing just a little bit later in the service, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. So we're filling out the picture of what love is. Listen, I I encourage you, listen, hear the good news, especially if it's familiar, but you're not really wanting to believe it for yourself here this morning. And I have in mind teenagers, especially this morning, as I've been thinking about this idea that God loves you. Listen, teenagers, you are a mess. You hear that? So am I. I, everyone feels it, you feel it, especially. You might be able to hold it together for a few minutes on Sunday morning. That's what most of us are trying to do right now, okay? But your head and your heart are exploding inside you, and that's okay. It's okay. God in Christ, he delights in you. He loves you. He sees you in your mess, and he loves you not because you're clean. Not because you're clean. So you don't have to clean yourself up. He loves you because he is love and he delights to show you his grace. This is, this is the foundation of the love of God. This is the foundation of the gospel. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were an utter and complete and total mess, while we are not only broken because of all the junk that happens to us, but We are also joining in that rebellion. We are sinners. God sees us in that place, and he died for you. He died for me. This is good news. I heard, I read in a book this week, um, and I'm just going to read this story. It's a really good story from Judges chapter 7. It's one of the, the stories in the life of Gideon, and I encourage you to pay attention just for a little block quote from Judges chapter 7, starting in verse 16. And Gideon, he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets into the hands of all of them, trumpets and empty jars. This is what Gideon did to all his army men, with torches inside the jars. So he gives them a trumpet, and then he gives them a jar, and they have torches inside the jar. It's kind of a strange story, a strange scene. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. It's a cool story so far. He continues. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands. So the jars with torches inside, they smashed them that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for 